Welcome to the Burnett Breakdown Podcast, where I, Hunter Burnett, keep up with the news so that you don't have to. Today we're going to be talking about Supreme Court executive privilege ruling, filibuster and elections bill, U.S. home sales, and in international news, China. On Wednesday, the Supreme Court refused a request from uh, Donald Trump to block the release of White House records concerning the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Trump, in his case, was claiming executive privilege. Now, executive privilege is is a, a concept that is meant to protect the president and his advisors uh, from having their conversations leaked and observed in order to ensure that the advisors can give uh, advice to the president without having to worry about those comments or those uh, that advice being used against them. And likewise, the, the uh, president can take in advice without worrying that taking in that advice can be used against them. So it's a way to allow the executive branch to operate as it ought to. However, the Supreme Court ruled that the uh, executive privilege claim that Trump was uh, claiming did not uh, outweigh the uh, need for a full accounting of the January 6th attack. And it's interesting because uh, executive privilege here, uh, it actually does not belong to Trump. So Trump doesn't have executive privilege in and of himself, but rather executive privilege applies to the office of the president. And that Trump's records, as he was president, do not belong to Trump. They actually belong to the National Archives. So when the Supreme Court made this ruling, uh, upon this ruling, the National Archives started to hand over hundreds of pages of documents to the committee. Now, when I say the committee, I mean, of course, the January 6th committee that is investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And I know there's been a lot of uh, kind of attempts by conservatives to discount this, um, uh, this committee as partisan or just a, another witch hunt uh, against Donald Trump, but I really don't think that's the case. Uh, I understand that there's uh, majority Democrats on this committee, but you do have uh, Liz Cheney on the committee, and uh, as I've mentioned before in my newsletter, Liz Cheney is far from a liberal. He, she may not be a, a MAGA type. She may not be a Trump supporter, She may, and she has made clear that she opposes Trump in every capacity. But if you look at her record, and by any measure, and any conservative report card that measures uh, how uh, aligned a politician is with conservative philosophy, she ranks as one of the highest-ranking conservative members in Congress. So if you are a conservative, you align most likely with Liz Cheney, at least how she's voted, more so than other Republicans. And so she doesn't have a an interest in liberal or progressive causes. And so the fact that she is on this committee gives, at least me personally, a lot more uh, comfort in knowing that it's not going to be just a bunch of progressives seeking out the best way to uh, push their agenda. But you have a staunch conservative who, whether you agree with her or not, is seeking to do what she believes is right and and that, by nature, is going to be more conservative since she is more conservative. So I, I think the rulings or any findings of this committee, obviously, they sh- like anything that comes out from government, should be taken with a, a grain of salt somewhat. But I think this committee is not just a partisan witch hunt like some others in the past. I think this is a – anything that I find, especially – when it comes to just plain primary sources that are, are hard to deny, should be considered and and thought about and, and and used to evaluate the Trump presidency in a in a general sense and to determine what real consequences Trump should face and whether he should be the twenty twenty four Republican nominee if he chooses to run.
Also on Wednesday, the Democrats failed to change the Senate's filibuster procedures in order to pass the Freedom to Vote and John Lewis Voting Rights Acts. So these are the two voting bills that have kind of been front and center of the Democratic uh, agenda of, uh, in the last year or so. And what the Democrats were trying to do is they were trying to get rid of the filibuster and make it a talking filibuster where you have to stand and give a speech the entire time rather than just voting to filibuster it. And then after the speech, uh, the uh, Senate could then vote on the measures. And so essentially they were trying to get rid of the filibuster in order to pass these voting rights bills. Now, the reason why they want to do this is because they see it as a kind of a dire need to save our democracy from another federal election being questioned or something of that nature. And so they, in in an attempt to make sure that that doesn't happen, they want to standardize federal elections. So in other words, they want to make uh, all states have certain requirements that they have to meet. And so some of these uh, standards that they would put into place are actually, you know, not so bad standards. Others, however, aren't. They are uh, not so great standards. And so this is kind of a should be a piece-by-piece legislation where they break it up and they vote on each measure to determine whether it is beneficial or not. But rather than that, they just want to throw it all together in this one large bill. And the reason that I don't really like this bill, even though, again, there are things in this bill that I like. For example, I uh, one of the things is to make Election Day a national holiday. Now, I think this is a great idea. I think Election Day should absolutely be a national holiday. I think it would be kind of a civic holiday where we take off, we get we get uh, work off, and we can all go together uh, on the same day and, and do our civic duty of voting. I think that would be a good thing. Um, in fact, I would probably get rid of all early voting for that reason because uh, I would want people to have to go on that day. I'd let them take off of work um, through the it being a national holiday, and I would want everyone to go have to go on that day uh, and obviously manage the lines and all that. But I, I just think it would be a good thing to have that kind of s- s- uh, collective civic duty. So I, so that's a measure in this that I would actually like. However, um, I'd like the decentralized natures of, of our elections right now. So, for example, we ha- we don't really have one election going on at once. Uh, we don't all vote on the president in the same way. We, in, in other words, have we basically have fifty different uh, state elections going on at once, all with their own requirements, their own uh, procedures in order to cast your vote. And really, if we break it down even more and take it down to the county level, which is how most elections are run, then we really have thousands of different elections happening all at once. And while this can in a lot of ways, be chaotic and uh, may be seen as unfair because some people have, you know, quote unquote, greater access than others to the polls. I I think this is a a good part of our election system because it it provides uh, kind of uh, inner stop gaps from anything happening like election fraud. So in order to commit uh, election fraud on a national scale, like was accused in 2020 by uh, Donald Trump. You, you don't have to corrupt one centralized body, but you have to basically corrupt thousands of different election bodies all across the country. You have to organize them. You have to get them to uh, be on the same page and then to relatively keep it quiet. Okay, That is nearly impossible to do. Not nearly impossible. That is impossible to do. Uh, you have too many people involved and too many different interests involved to all get them on the same page, doing the same thing in uh, in the in, 
in what it would take to steal an election. And so the decentralized nature of, of our elections, though chaotic, I think actually provide necessary stop gaps from anything like that happening. Because if you just have like a, a federal um, kind of center for elections and they are the ones that kind of determine what votes are uh, – uh, count and what votes don't because whether they those votes or those districts or those counties or those states met the federal standards, if you have that one body, then really you just have to corrupt that one body. Now, I'm not saying that would necessarily happen, but it, it is it is a better uh, bet that that one body can be corrupted over the thousands like we have all across the country. Now, the reason that the um, Democrats are wanting to abolish the filibuster over these bills is because they uh, have talked in ways as if this bill is what is going to save democracy. Now, the reason why they say that is because they look at some of these election bills that have been passed in mostly Republican-held states, and they uh, say that those bills are meant to limit access to the ballot boxes. Now, most of these bills are meant to address some of the changes that were made in 2020. So in 2020, because of the pandemic, uh, many states, some illegally, like Pennsylvania, but that's beside the point, some, most states changed their election laws in some capacity. They, they allowed more mail-in ballots. They allowed more absentee ballots, whatever it was, or, or the drop boxes, right? They added measures to make it safe to vote in the midst of a pandemic. Now, they did these, and again, it doesn't matter how they did them right now. Some of them, again, like I said, were illegal, but nonetheless, they did these changes, and now many of these states are either um, codifying these changes. So like in Georgia, um, they are uh, – a la- so there's you know all the headlines talk about how they are limiting drop boxes uh, or access to the drop boxes. But in 2018, there were no drop boxes. Those were 2020 measures put in place because of the pandemic. So all they are doing is powering back some of these 2020 measures in order to ensure election integrity. Now, again, it doesn't matter how much you think that's an issue, uh, but it is not the end of democracy. They are not trying to act. I don't know what their intentional, their uh, individual in- intentions or motivations are, but these measures in large part don't necessarily end uh, voter access of minorities to the polls. That just isn't what's happening. They're just parring back many of these election uh, measures. Now, with that in mind, I have been appalled by the way that Joe Biden and other Democrats have talked about the uh, condition of our democracy. They act and they have mentioned Jim Crow multiple times as if we are living in the midst of Jim Crow. To compare our modern uh, day to Jim Crow, a time period when it wasn't just uh, difficult for minorities to vote. It wasn't in, – in most cases, they made laws to prevent them from voting. But uh, Jim Crow, where it was borderline basically legal for minorities to be lynched, to be killed, and it was legal for them be, for them to be discriminated against. And treated as less than, treated as second-class citizens. Okay, that is not what is going on today. You can argue for greater access to uh, the polls. You can uh, you can argue for different voting measures putting in being put in place, or prevent others from being put in place. You can argue against individual state bills that have been passed. But to say that if you don't pass these bills, 
then you are basically the as just like segregationist of the 1960s. That is absolutely despicable. And to imply, like Joe Biden did in his speech on January 11th, that if you don't vote for these bills and these vote these bills don't pass, that the 2022 elections could very well be rigged. Okay, that sounds exactly like Donald Trump. If you're going to complain about Donald Trump uh, claiming voter fraud when there was none, then you better uh, be mad at Biden undermining our faith in the elections even more. Okay, it doesn't matter if it's a Republican or Democrat. If we value our democracy, if we value having uh, faith in our election system, which is the not just the easiest it's ever been to vote but also the most secure voting and elections we've ever had in our country's history, then we should have a president that speaks that way and not one that undermines the elections as if they're going to be rigged if the Democrats don't win. Now on to some quick hits. As many people already know, the housing market in the U.S. was on fire last year in 2021 as home sales surged to a 15-year high. Uh, existing home sales rose 8.5%, and the median existing home price rose to $346,900, up 16.9% from 2020. This was largely due to low borrowing rates as interest rates were low and intense buyer demand, and on the flip side, a relatively low supply. So there were 910,000 homes for sale at the end of December, the lowest level on record. However, the number of homes currently under construction is at a multi-year high, which means that supply should come back up, which should lower some prices a little bit. But as everything else in the economy, builders have been delayed by labor shortages and supply chain issues. With that said, um, the recent rise in interest rates as well as the supply, as I just mentioned, coming up a little bit, housing uh, economists, or at least some of them, have forecasted that the housing market should cool down in the second half of this year. We'll see if that happens. Now on to some international news. And on Monday, we got some Chinese economic data. So uh, this is China and uh, data, so always take it with a little bit of a grain of salt, but this data did not necessarily paint Chinese economy in such a rosy picture. Uh, the Chinese economy grew 8.1% in 20, 2021, however, only 4% in the fourth quarter compared to a year earlier. So in other words, most of the Chinese economy's growth was front-loaded in that first half of the year when the economy was still uh, gr uh, growing really well and recovering really well from the COVID-19 pandemic and using those low baselines when the economy was shut down. And so the uh, economic growth really wasn't that spectacular for the Chinese economy. And on top of that, not only did the uh, Chinese economy not grow as uh, quickly as it has been, but the uh, birth rate also plummeted. So the number of newborns in China fell for the fifth straight year in 2021 to the lowest it's been in the modern Chinese era. Now, this is largely because of the one-child policy that was put in place for decades in China, which only allowed each family to have one child. And now they have ended that one-child policy and not only ended it, but now they are allowing up to three uh, children per family. They've even offered incentives to young families to have kids. However, what they're finding out is that Chinese women simply don't want to have children, whether that's cultural because of the one-child policy or what. They just simply don't want to have children, and the birth rate is plummeting. This is a big deal for China because as the population of China gets older, that means there's less young people to work. And less young people to work, there's less young people to support the older people that are uh, taking advantage of some of the kind of social uh, programs that they have in place in China. 
And so this is a taxing demographic challenge for the Chinese economy. Uh, they are a they are the largest country in the world, but by already by the end of this decade, they're supposed to be surpassed in that measure by India. And so I think what we're starting to see, and this is why I actually care so much about the Chinese economy, is because for a long time it has been, uh, for the most part, and not free market, so to speak, but they have allowed uh, kind of more private businesses to take hold. And now with Xi Jinping in China and his new, like uh, more uh, authoritarian regime and his more authoritarian rule, he has started to uh, become more aggressive in how he regulates or how he controls the private uh, companies in China. And with this, uh, these trends that I just mentioned, the slowing of the Chinese economy and the Chinese birth rate plummeting, I'm not sure how much longer China is going to be able to be the economic powerhouse that they are. I know that a lot of people see China, and especially companies, see China as a huge market opportunity, and it is certainly that. Again, it is the largest, uh, pop, uh, the largest country in terms of population in the world. However, and this kind of goes back to Friedrich Hayek's knowledge problem, the more that economic planning happens or economic planning is centralized, you, ha you face an issue where one person or a group of people or one body doesn't have the necessary knowledge it requires because our world is so complex. So with a, something as complex as an economy, you don't. no one can know enough to put in place a productive economy. So as the economy becomes more centralized – I don't think China can I just I could because I believe the knowledge problem problem is such a problem and that I believe uh, not only that free markets are the best but free markets are the only sys economic system that ultimately ultimately works in the long run I am not convinced that China can maintain its economic grip I know that a lot of people will disagree with that but I simply do not see, with the knowledge problem in mind, with these demographic trends that China is seeing, how they continue in the long run to be an economic power. And that's not to mention the amount of debt that they have, and their entire economy is basically run off of debt. And I just don't see how that is a sustainable long run. And so as China increases in its power, just politically and militarily, and the United States starts to see China more and more as a an adversary, I think we have to continue to watch this uh, economic data and consider whether uh, our, our ideas of free market uh, economies are wrong or whether uh, we should see China as, as the economic power that we tend to see them as now. Now to continue a, a story from last week with Russia and Ukraine, uh, the Biden administration approved $200 million in new defensive military assistance to Ukraine, including Javelin anti-tank missiles. They did stop short of providing offensive weapons, so they just offered uh, defensive weapons, but they did say that they won't use direct military force to support the country. So this really supports that third option that I presented last week on the podcast, that the United States won't intervene directly, they won't ignore Ukraine, but rather they would uh, offer up as many kind of weapons or as much assistance as they could to Ukraine, and it seems to be that they are going that route. Now, with that said, and in a press conference on Wednesday, uh, Joe Biden went on to talk about Russia in pretty uh, remarkable way. Uh, so first, he predicted, and he said, quote, my guess is he, meaning Putin, will move in. He has to do something. So in other words, he's predicting on the world stage that Putin will indeed uh, invade Ukraine. He's admitting that that's what he thinks. 
and he is, uh, I guess, not not doing much about it. However, he did continually threat that they will suffer consequences, but those threats were kind of undermined by a statement he made le- later. He said, quote, Russia will be held accountable if it invades. It's one thing if it's a minor incursion and we end up having to fight about what to do and not to do. But if they actually do what they're capable of doing with the forces amassed on the border, it is going to be a disaster for Russia. So he is threatening Russia, but he throws in this line about a well, if it's a minor incursion, then we will probably end up fighting about it and uh, about what to do and what not to do. So in that one kind of throwaway line, he mentions that a minor incursion will be treated differently. Okay, so first, what is a minor incursion in terms of the sovereignty of another country? Okay, if another country steps foot into the United States with an army, is that a minor incursion? If they just, you know, take New Mexico, is that a minor incursion? Or what if they declare basically cyber warfare on the United States? Is that a minor incursion? Okay, what is exactly a minor incursion when we're talking about the sovereignty of a nation? So I have no idea what that means, but you best believe that Russia is hearing that and saying, okay, so if if a minor incursion is going to be treated differently, then maybe we just stick to minor incursions and we just do minor incursions one at a time. But not only did he uh, talk about minor incursions and basically admit that they will be treated differently, but he also admitted to divisions within NATO. He says end up having to fight about what to do and not to do, acknowledging that there is differences and difference of opinions in NATO. Now, everyone knows this is the case, but then he would go on later to describe in detail some of those differences and elaborate on that. Now, if you're standing in front of an enemy, you don't want to acknowledge your weaknesses. You can talk about that amongst yourself. You can talk about it amongst your allies. But to admit to your enemy that, hey, if you have a minor incursion, then there's going to be uh, some arguing about what to do. Why would you do that on a grand international scale? Now, it's one thing if I, someone on the outside looking in, like, analyzing the situation and predicting what will happen and saying that there's divisions within NATO, okay? I have zero power and no one's really listening to me. But this is the president of the United States on the world international stage basically offering up his anal- his, his, his analysts to uh, his analysis to the rest of the world for them to hear, including Putin himself. So I am baffled that he thought that this was a good idea. Now, uh, Russia has continued to be aggressive on the border uh, as Russian troops and weaponry moved into Belarus uh, in addition to the 100,000 Russian troops. So now they have, in a a real serious way, surrounded Ukraine. So this situation is uh, is not improving in the slightest bit, and it's really not improving considering uh, the uh, United States president has uh, basically admitted to divisions within NATO and... Uh, mentioned that minor incursions would be treated differently. So the situation has not improved much since last week, but it is worth updating as we go. And speaking of failures of the American president, Joe Biden, uh, it is time for the breakdown of the breakdown, where I talk about my newsletter, The Burnett Breakdown, and elaborate kind of a little bit about what I wrote about. And uh, this week, I wrote about Biden's first year in office. Since it was the one-year anniversary of his inauguration on Thursday, I decided to write about kind of his year and what I thought about his presidency so far. Now, I say this in the piece, but you know I don't really have an interest in bashing Joe Biden, uh, and and I don't necessarily want him to fail. That's not my goal, and also I don't want to compare him to Trump. 
Uh, I know a lot of people will say, well, his, he was elected to not be Donald Trump, and that is true. That is a, largely why he was elected. But that's not the bar. Okay, The bar is not to just be better than Donald Trump or better than another president. It is to be the best president you can be. And in my mind, a good president is one that pursues conservative policies that I think are the best uh, for the country. And so uh, in evaluating Biden's year, uh, I I think it is largely a failure, and I struggle to see how you can say otherwise. I Particularly, uh, I point out three different ways that it's a failure. The first is spending. Now, uh, I don't necessarily blame Biden for inflation. As I mentioned last week on the podcast, uh, when you have supply uh, chain shortages and supply chain issues, you're going to have uh, – and, and, and demand remains the same or goes up. You're going to have price increases. That's bound to happen. And on top of that, you have labor shortages. Okay, So in- inflation was almost bound to happen no matter who was president. So I don't blame Biden for inflation. However, I do blame him for making it worse. Okay, like I say in the piece, the one kind of my one standard when it comes to inflation, which is an area that you probably can't control a whole lot, is just don't make it worse. And he made it worse. Okay, I don't know how much worse. Like I, I'm not an economist. I don't know exactly how much that 1.9 trillion dollar COVID relief bill that he passed into law uh, impacted inflation, but it had to impact it some. He gave money out to people in just straight payments and increased a lot of of the social welfare programs. That is an influx of capital into the system, and with that. Uh, people will spend it, and that is – so you – with uh, supply shortages, then increased demand leading to price increases. We shouldn't be surprised when uh, inflation is the way that it is. On top of that, this is in with the history of a, an intense spending spree that the United States has been on for the last uh, – decade plus and someone at some point has to do something about the spending okay i use the illustration in the uh newsletter about it's a walking down a hallway it's pitch black it's infinite so it keeps going it keeps going but at some point you know that you're going to fall into a hole that leads to an abyss and you don't know when that hole is going to come and you could walk for years but eventually you will hit that hole that hole and you know it's coming that's what we're doing with our debt right now we will continue to walk and we may be able to do this for years we don't know how long we can do this but eventually it will come back to bite us and instead of addressing that now Biden, uh, along with other presidents, but Biden is president now, he has decided that he's going to continue that trend rather than stopping it and actually getting serious about cutting the budget. And so when it comes to spending, uh, Biden has failed. And foreign policy, he's absolutely failed. Uh, I've mentioned already on the podcast Ukraine and Russia. Uh, He has, uh, in his uh, one press conference alone, ruined uh, or made that situation a heck of a lot worse. And he made that situation worse, as I mentioned in the piece, simply by withdrawing from Afghanistan. That gives Putin the kind of uh, the uh, motivation or the inspiration to start being more aggressive because he saw the United States did not have the wherewithal to maintain their presence in Afghanistan. Now, I wrote a couple newsletters back last year about uh, the uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan, and my main thing about Afghanistan is we have to remember why we were there in the first place. We were attacked on 9-11 where thousands of lives, thousands of Americans' lives were killed. They were killed. They were ended that day on 9-11 by a uh, group in Afghanistan— and then a ruling party in Afghanistan who protected that group. So we went in and we disposed of that group. Now, you can argue about how long we should have stayed there and whether we should have stayed there and whether the mission got uh, convoluted and whether we should have been building a democracy. All that is fine and dandy. But we do know that al-Qaeda and the Taliban were still in uh, Afghanistan. 
And instead of maintaining a presence there, a presence, may I add, that uh, in the grand scheme of everything did not cost many lives and did not cost much money. So instead of uh, sustaining that uh, will to fight, Biden withdrew and withdrew in the most chaotic means possible with uh, people literally hanging onto airplane wheels in order to leave Afghanistan because the Taliban was taking over. So now Afghanistan, after 20 years of being there, is back under control of the ruling party that we uh, tried to dispose of. And uh, the rest of the world, including Putin, see that and says the um, America is weak. They don't have the wherewithal. They don't have the will to fight. And so in foreign policy terms, Biden, I, I'm not sure he could have failed Worse, I say that he probably could, um, but in in the first year it has been absolutely a failure. And then finally, a section that I didn't even really want to add until he gave his speech on January 11th. Okay, my one of my biggest issues with Donald Trump was after the election when he continually said that it was full of voter fraud, that it was fake, and that it was stolen. Okay, what that did is it doesn't matter if uh, if one percent of his supporters believe that. Okay, one percent of his seventy plus million voters is a lot of people, and if they believe that lie, as we saw some of them did, then bad things can happen, as we saw with January sixth. Okay, that was Donald Trump spreading lies and undermining our election system, and so Biden did that exact same thing by basically saying that if you don't vote for these bills that I mentioned earlier, then you are not only a segregationist, but that the elections in 2022 are going to be rigged because of it. Some quotes from that speech. But with this new law in Georgia, his loyal, his uh, Trump loyalists will be placed in charge of state elections. What is that going to mean? Well, the chances for chaos and subversion are even greater as partisans seek the result they want. No matter what the voters have said, no matter what what the count, what, what's their end game? he says, to turn the will of the voters into a mere suggestion, something states can respect or ignore. The facts won't matter. Your vote won't matter. They'll just decide what they want and then do it. Okay, that is the exact same thing that Donald Trump said at the end of his administration. Biden is saying the exact same thing now. He's undermining faith in our election system. And that is one of the reasons why uh, more people were willing to support him after January 6th than before. Because they saw Trump's damage to our election uh, integrity, or at least our belief in election integrity, and they thought that Biden at least wouldn't do that. And then he comes out and he does that exact same thing. That is completely unacceptable. It's completely despicable. And it's the very thing that I hated most about Donald Trump. And now Biden is doing it. So that, in that regard, his presidency has also been a failure. Now, like I say in the piece, he has plenty of time. He has three years to turn this thing around. But I do think those are serious failures with serious consequences. And with that, that is it for the Burnett Breakdown podcast this week. Uh, please feel free to share this podcast with whoever you like, and I hope you will join again next week.